Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing very well. Our guest this week is Daniel Grossberg, who is a state representative elect from Louisville. Uh, he does not have a Republican opponent in the in the general election, so he has been working for other candidates, but, you know, uh, worked really hard in the primary, so if he's taking a little break, that's that's fine for him. Um, he, yeah, he defeated an incumbent in the primary, and, and he will now uh, represent a district in east-central Louisville. Um, he is a, a Jewish person. That's a piece of his identity that's really important, so we talked to him about that. We talked about uh, his connection to Kentucky Democrats that goes way back. We talked about, uh, you know, what are the issues in, in uh, that, that animate him, that get him, that he'll be working on the most in Frankfurt, and lots of other stuff. Um, it was a good interview. I mean, I like talking to Daniel. I know him a lot from, like, online and just various other things, but it was nice to talk to him in this context. I was, I was very happy with how it went with him. How did you think, Jasmine? Yeah, I thought it went really well, and it's a little bit different than um, some of the other interviews we've done. We've we've interviewed a lot of people who have tough races in November, and Daniel doesn't. That's so. <laughs> true. Yeah, absolutely. Very much, very much the case. Um, yeah, we have lots of stuff to talk about on the show uh, today, though. Jasmine, uh, I would say very few people know this, but before this podcast, we were on a different podcast many, many, many years ago, and it was called Sports Are Involved, and it was about sports, and this week's show is about sports, sort of. Um, we have two sports-related shows to talk about, so we're taking you way back in time to the Sports Are Involved days. Jasmine's going to talk to us about a really kind of gruesome investigation uh, into systemic abuse in the... Uh, the NWSL, that's the Professional Women's Soccer League, uh, that deeply involves racing Louisville, the, the team here in Louisville. Um, so she's going to talk to us about that. It's it's tough. Um, uh, we are also going to talk about the United uh, University of Kentucky uh, athletics program that violated the open records request law with it, uh, with a connection to the Kelly Craft for Governor campaign. So we'll be talking about that as well. Those are our two sports stories. In addition, Jasmine looked into uh, some stuff about marijuana and Governor Bashir, uh, some stuff that's going on at the behest of the Biden administration in, in, in terms of uh, reform around the issue of marijuana, and there are a few quick hits. So, without any further ado, Jasmine, talk to us about the NWSL. Okay, so while this is a sports story, um, I think this is one that certainly does have an impact on our state. It's, you know, it's about systemic abuse against women who live and train here. Um, Racing Louisville also has an academy for kids here in Louisville and the health of our professional soccer teams impact the Louisville community and tourism here. It's something that's become really popular. Um, And there's also kind of a potential criminal element to it. Uh, So it's something that I thought we'd talk about. And I honestly don't know where to start because we don't really talk about sports on here. So I don't know how much people know or um, what background people even need. But so Louisville has two professional soccer teams. They have Louisville City FC, which is a USL men's team. USL is a minor, like a minor league team, 
sort of. Sort of. Uh, like, soccer is different than baseball. You don't get, like, promoted up to the big leagues. Right. It's like, like you, you just sign a contract with a team in a lower league, you know, because maybe, you know, you're not quite as good as the folks in the MLS, but, you know, you can get signed by a different team just off the roster. Yeah. Right. So they are a professional league, but they are not the highest level of professional soccer. Right. They are a lower tier professional league. And then Louisville also has Racing Louisville FC, which is a women's professional team, and NWSL team, which is the highest level of women's professional soccer in the U.S. And so um, they both play at Lynn Family Stadium. They play at the same stadium in Louisville, and they're both owned by the same company, Soccer Holdings, LLC. So that's really all the background <laughs> I'm going to provide. Soccer Holdings also owns um, like the, the soccer academies for kids and the training facilities. So it's all owned by the same company and they play at the same stadium. So on October 3rd, a report was released regarding an independent investigation into the National Women's Soccer League, the NWSL. The investigation was done by former U.S. Attorney and U.S. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates. And it largely is centered around abuse involving three coaches in the NWSL, Paul Riley, Rory Dames, and Christy Holly, who was Racing Louisville's inaugural coach, who was fired under what were then mysterious circumstances a little over a year ago. Because we're, we're kind of talking about the Kentucky portion of the story, um, we're really just going to focus on the Christy Holly portion of it. And so a quick summary of the Holly allegations. So Christy Holly, who is male, by the way, I wanted to clarify that for, for people who may not be familiar with it. Holly previously dated a player on his former team, Sky Blue FC. That team is now called Gotham FC, so it's it's no longer Sky Blue. But he dated a player, but she was at sort of like an older age age appropriate player, I guess. But because of that relationship, he kind of lost his locker room. And at the time, there wasn't any kind of fraternization policies, and so no one really knew what to do about it. But because of the locker room issues. Um, and there had been complaints about verbal abuse. The front office at Sky Blue believed that they needed to remove Holly, but they did it through um, arranging a mutual parting of ways. At that time, um, Christy Holly had coached a player named Aaron Simon there, um, and when he coached her there, he had kind of begun making dirty jokes and sending her like suggestive text messages. After he left Sky Blue, though, things kind of escalated and he started sending her unsolicited sexual photos and started like requesting the same from her and started texting her using WhatsApp um, and encrypted texts, things that other people wouldn't see. And then when he was hired at racing and he drafted her, she said that she was happy because she thought that if he was her coach again, that that would make him stop doing things like that, which is a really messed up like thing to have to think, right? 
So, um, so is Aaron Simon the same person that you referenced earlier that he was dating at? No. So that's a that's a whole different person. So he was yeah, in. Yeah, I I okay. didn't even like the the person that he dated really has no relevance to. I didn't even like include her name. So Aaron Simon, he coached her at Sky Blue. Aside from him dating a different player, he also started like sending her weird messages, unsolicited naked photos and things like that after he coached her and after this other relationship ended. Um, And then he got hired at racing and he drafted her. And the reason I name Erin Simon is because she, she chose to disclose and be named in the Yates report. She was drafted to racing Louisville um, she was hoping since he was coaching her again that that things would kind of go back to normal. But his advances continued and actually escalated. And then in April of 2021, he made her come in for an individual film session um, where no one else but her was present, where he sexually assaulted her and told her that he was going to touch her for every make her watch film and touch her for every pass that she had messed up in the game. After that happened, he began like verbally abusing her because she like tried to stop talking to him. She eventually told a team chaplain who told management and then Holly was pretty much immediately fired after that. And the details were not released due to a non-disclosure agreement. And then racing did not cooperate with the Yates investigation. And the reason that they were able to find out what happened is because Aaron Simon chose to eventually come forward and give an interview. The report also revealed problems with other issues with Holly, like rage, manipulation, singling out players who spoke up about different things, issues in dealing with injuries. There was another player who Aaron Simon would bring along with her when she would see the coach to try to prevent things from happening, and he would treat her pretty poorly as well. Um, So there were a lot of other issues along with the sexual assault, but that was the reason that he was terminated. He also never held an A license, um, a license that's required to coach in the NWSL and he didn't have that when he was at Sky Blue either. So just to recap this a little bit, there's this guy um, who was the coach of Racing Louisville who was fired under mysterious circumstances as far as we could see from the outside. But mm-hmm. on the inside, what was happening was that he was like sexually assaulting and sexually harassing a player on his team who he had a history with at a previous team um, who wanted to be on his team because she thought if he (laughs) was her just her coach, he would behave himself a little better. He didn't. He was even worse. Um, This person um, who'd gone through like all this abuse told a chaplain who told the team who knew about it and arranged a mutual parting of ways as opposed to like some sort of like we're firing you for cause. Uh, And and that's basically how how that went. So 
racing did fire him for cause. The mutual parting of ways happened at Sky Blue. Ah, uh, okay. So, so, Lu- um, so here in Louisville, he was fired for cause, but they didn't yeah. really release what the cause was. Right. So, like, the reason that we hired him is because he wasn't fired for cause at Sky Blue. It was, it was like a resignation, and so no one really knew why he left there. And so no one knew like that there were issues with him. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. yeah. So back in 2020, 2021, when Holly was fired, I would say there was speculation, but very little detail provided about the reasons for his termination. Like I think people thought that there was probably some kind of like, Tough coaching, verbal abuse, maybe something inappropriate happened, but no one knew what it was. Um, So Soccer Holdings president, James O'Connor, was pressed in an interview about what happened, and he made, like, these horrible comments. He said he didn't know if what happened was illegal, and he said that was a subjective viewpoint depending on who you ask, and he said... I'll plead the fifth. I'm going to take the lawyer answer on that one. And like kind of laughed like that was his comment. Yeah. That doesn't seem like it's going to help anything. Yeah. And I mean, there wasn't anything to think of it at the time because nobody knew why he was fired. And then now when this report comes out, I mean, everyone is going back to that interview. Like how could our, how could, our president say that knowing that's what happened. Um, So that is really problematic. (laughs) So um, that the Yates report came out on October 3rd and racing Louisville waited over two days um, before finally issuing a letter from James O'Connor, the president, which basically said, we're not the same club that we were then. And we're trying to prove that. And he also said that they would cooperate with the NWSL and the NWSL players association, separate joint investigation. So there's a separate investigation that's also ongoing that those findings haven't been released yet. They said, we're going to cooperate with that. That was really all that was in the statement, Um, which was not really much considering that they'd had two days to come up with something to say, and it wasn't a lot considering what was happening at other teams. And so um, other portions of the Yates report implicated things that had happened at Portland's team, the Thorns, and other teams. And the Thorns, their leadership resigned. Other teams had coaches resign. And so all of these other teams, leadership and presidents are stepping away or being fired or resigning and nothing of the sort has happened here. And all we got was a letter saying, we're trying to show you we're going to do a good job and we're going to cooperate this time. And so that, to me, doesn't really feel like very much. (laughs) Since then, former 
racing players and one current player, Amina Eckett, who is a Louisville native and a manual alum, Robert, have given interviews to Tyler Griever of WHAS, who has done really fantastic reporting on this story. Um, and the players have all emphasized other types of issues prior to Christy Holly's termination that were brought to James O'Connor regarding Holly that were ignored or that he just straight up took Coach Holly's side. And so, you know, they all wanted to bring attention to the sexual assault against Aaron Simon, but also wanted to highlight, hey, we brought these other issues to him and we were ignored or they took his side or he just tried to smooth them over. It was clear that they felt like they were never listened to until this other bad thing happened. The players also believe that they believe that staying quiet about why he was being terminated was being done to protect Aaron Simon, um, not because of a non-disclosure agreement, which was what was revealed in the Yates report. They wouldn't talk to Sally Yates because of a non-disclosure. And they believe at the time, you know, we didn't want to say anything because we wanted to protect our teammate. And now we don't know how much of that was really to protect her and how much of that was the front office just wanting to protect themselves from being sued, you know? And so they have confusion about what they were being told from the front office at the time. The players as a whole also issued a written statement urging fans to continue to stand behind the players and expressing their expectation that racing's leadership will fully cooperate with the NWSL and players association joint investigation the statement said to me that they believe that there's more to uncover maybe that's like reading into it i would say that if no leadership changes have been made they they think it's all out there at this point but you know i i think that's hard to say so since the yates report was released it was released two days after Racing Louisville season ended. Racing did not make the playoffs, um, but there was a Louisville City match coming up that week, um, who is, of course, owned and managed by the same front office. Fans were encouraged to wear teal to support sexual assault victims, and the supporter section had large banners reading Arrest Holly and J-O-C out for James O'Connor, and a big banner that said You Knew. Sponsors have issued statements um, that their continued sponsorships depend on the team making real changes to protect players, but the only sponsor that's actually suspended their sponsorship so far is Sherwin-Williams. Others have just made pretty like vague statements that they hope the team will make changes. This week, a mom also came forward whose daughter was an assistant athletic trainer for racing who was employed by Baptist Health, and Coach Holly wanted her fired, but didn't have the power to fire her because she was employed by Baptist. Um, And so they say that he made up lies about her, that James O'Connor backed up to Baptist without any kind of like HR present and which basically forced her to quit. And of course that's just someone else's anecdote, um, but it certainly corroborates what players have said about 
James O'Connor taking Holly's side every time that concerns were brought to him. But I think what was evident from the Yates report, not just about Christy Holly, but about him as well as other coaches at other programs, was that this abuse was systemic um, and that there was a glaring lack of transparency and cooperation. It was nearly impossible for Sally Yates and her team to gather information. People in leadership didn't want to cooperate or provide information, um, hid behind non-disclosure agreements. You know, Racing Louisville hired a coach that had had issues at another program and wasn't properly vetted. He was able to walk away from another program Um, But it had certainly had issues elsewhere um, that no one knew about. And so people had been allowed to just move on after misconduct. And that had happened um, with other coaches named in the report as well. And so this is a problem not just here, um, but at the other programs too. And so there's certainly a major issue um, about players being protected from abuse. And so I think that we're in a tough spot in Louisville right now because soccer is something that's been really good for the Louisville community. Um, We've built up a a really big fan base here and we have these academies um, for kids now. And we have like really good attendance records at the stadium. Um, But the current leadership didn't protect its women's team. And I think that, There has to be accountability for that. And I think most people would say that. So James O'Connor, who's the president of Soccer Holdings, he coached Louisville City when it started in Louisville. And so, you know, a lot of people do think he's responsible for like building up this soccer community here. And while he does get credit for that, um, he I think he has to like take accountability for bringing in Christy Holly and his actions and not protecting players. And it, it sounds like just the sexual assault against Aaron Simon wasn't an isolated incident when other players came forward about not having injuries taken seriously or verbal abuse and things like that. And they raised other issues and problems that they brought to him that weren't listened to And so I think that there has to be some kind of changes in leadership. I think another issue is that he's never worked in women's soccer. And so I think that if we're going to have a women's team here, that we need someone in our front office with NWSL experience. And so I just think that changes have to be made. And it doesn't seem like there's any willingness to do that. And I think... I think that a lot of people don't know what to do. A lot of people have canceled their season tickets. Um, There's a lot of like racing Louisville supporter groups that are like disbanding podcasts that have stopped um, recording because they don't feel like they can support this organization that can't protect its players. And so I think um, it's, they're in a really difficult position 
And I'm not sure, I'm not sure what's going to happen. You know, it's, it's tough to be like a, a team in a small market anyways. And I hope that soccer in Louisville is thriving next year, but I think that changes have to be made and I don't know if they will be. Yeah. And so Jasmine, it sounds to me like, like James O'Connor is is clearly the person who's the the person who would be the most obvious person who would be able to take some responsibility here, um, just specifically. I mean, he's the president of the organization, and like you mentioned, uh, you know, he gets this credit for starting uh, Louisville City and you know building this community. But but you know, Louisville's always had like a really strong soccer community. I mean, from from a, like a small kid. Uh, situation and like our our travel teams we've always had those going back to when I was a kid several different groups like that I mean soccer has been thriving in Louisville at the amateur level for like a really long time so I mean I don't think he necessarily can take credit for like building soccer in this town I do think you know he does he deserves some credit for you know uh, bringing Louisville City and bringing racing to, to to town but I mean it does definitely seems like he's engage in some really bad behavior that deserves to have some consequences associated with it. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. It doesn't sound like that those consequences are going to be forthcoming, which is really unfortunate. Um, and yeah, whenever you talk about sports fandom and loyalty to a team, uh, it's just such a hard thing because it's just, it, it almost like goes beyond, um, you know, logic. Like, you know, why are you a fan yeah. of this team? It's because I live there and I want the best for it and I'm going to cheer for them um even you know even though all of this is going on so it is it's i think it's it's so tough because obviously like we want what's best for the players and if if the players if the players don't want an NWSL that's what i want for them but i think that they do want to play and i want whatever changes they want to be made mm-hmm. and I want to support them, and so I think if they want to play, then, you know, canceling season tickets and not going to their matches, like, I don't know, is that what they want? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I, I think it's tough. It, um, it is. It feels wrong, but it is also like, you know, back when Heine Brothers was voting on their union and they were like, you know, we want you to come in and keep buying our coffee. You know, that's important yeah. to us. Like, yeah, like, yeah, it is. It's just, it, it feels bad. It feels wrong. But at the same time, like, what are you going to do? I mean, these these women are given the opportunity to play soccer for a living, which, you know, for somebody, for, for, for years, I mean, decades and centuries before that, that wasn't an option for women. It wasn't an option for a lot of men in the United States. Like, and now it's something that people are able to do. And I think that they feel lucky on that level. But yeah, you should be able to do it without, you know, having really gross and horrible things happen to you. So, you know, that's, that's a tough one. Um, so, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Jasmine. I just hope, you know, I really, I really wish that some people would wake up there at soccer holdings and realize that there's some accountability that needs to be had. Um, that would go such a long way towards restoring a lot of faith in the team. Um, but yeah, it just doesn't seem like it's likely, yeah. right? And like, my heart is absolutely with Aaron Simon, who had who had to come forward. And if she hadn't, we we may still not know. Yeah. Why Christy Holly? was fired because racing didn't cooperate at all with the Yates investigation. And 
I also am really proud of Amina Ekic, who is the one current player who has spoken to the media. And I think that that takes a lot of bravery, too, because aside from the head coach, all of the other players are still part of the organization. And, and she's kind of, you know, spoken out. Yeah. Yeah. Against it. James O'Connor still her boss. Yeah. Yeah. Which is it's wild. Yeah, there's like no change that's occurred here at all with the one exception of the man who literally sexually assaulted somebody being fired a couple of years ago. So, yeah. I mean, this is just a really – it's a really heartbreaking story, um, you know, at, for something that should have been so cool, is so cool. It's so great that we have a, uh, an NWSL team. It's the only top top league professional sport or professional athletic club in the city of Louisville. And, and you know, this is this is the first, you know, big story that, that comes out of that yeah. team. So the matches are so much fun. These are, like, the world's top athletes that you can see play in Louisville. It's so great for the city, and I just want it to be the best it can be. And I want the athletes to play in a safe environment. Yeah. You know, like, is that too much to ask? No. And, you know, if if they – I think that that is the most important thing, Jasmine. I totally agree with you. I think, like, lower on the list, though, is to get it so that the Paramount Plus stream works all the time. I think that's yeah, – Yeah, imp- that would be nice, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. We've been talking about this for a long time. It is a really important story. It's a big story in Louisville. But let's move on to the next thing, um, which is the University of Kentucky Athletics Department and their violation of the open records law. Um, so, Jasmine, you you know that on J- September 7th, Kelly Kraft announced her intention to run for the governor of Kentucky. On that same day, a staffer at the Kentucky Democratic Party submitted an open records request to the University of Kentucky Athletics Department for communications between head football coach Mark Stoops and assistant football coach Vince Marrow and, uh, quote, two individuals, unquote, um, widely believed to be Joe and Kelly Kraft. Just days after Kelly Craft's announcement, before anybody had caught wind that, that ORR had even um, reached the University of Kentucky Athletics, um, Joe and Kelly Craft announced a seven and a half million dollar gift to the University of Kentucky Athletics Department for a new football facility, or at least part of a new football facility. So, um, yeah, definitely some awkward situations going on there. Um, the University of Kentucky did deny that open records request, and the Attorney General weighed in, saying that they should have released those materials. So according to the University of Kentucky spokesperson uh, Jay Blanton, the university only wanted to, quote, narrow the request, unquote, and not outright deny it, but the university can still appeal the ruling to the court system. Right now, just an Attorney General ruling so it can go into the court system if they want to challenge it. I think that seems likely. So that's where we're at. Like the the ORR was given, it was denied. Uh, the Democratic Party took that request to the Attorney General, asked for an opinion. He gave one back, said that UK did in fact uh, break that the open records law, and now UK is, has the opportunity to appeal to the courts. In addition to the new facility, the crafts have been tightly connected with UK athletics long before Kelly. Kraft was running for public office. This was something that we talked about quite a bit during our segment where we talked about Kelly Kraft. Um, they have the the Joe Kraft Center, I think is where they play. They practice basketball. Um, they donated a bunch of money for the Wildcat Coal Lodge where the basketball players live. Um, there's a lot of Kraft money running around the UK Athletics Department. Um, however, 
that doesn't mean that future dollars weren't put at stake if the athletic leaders didn't fall in line. So that's, I think, what the Democratic Party is trying to get at. What type of you know quid pro quo might there have been from the crafts to the athletic department? Um, Mark Stoops and Vince Mara both expressed some level of support for Kelly Craft on the day of her announcement, mostly just by retweeting her video that was widely, you know, reported. Uh, you know, oh gosh, Mark Stoops is in on this. It also, I mean, I don't know, Jasmine, what do you think? It, it does feel like they do have like a genuine like relationship with her. Like they, they do actually seem like they know her or, or, or like, like her or whatever. I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that they... I think that probably, like, Cal, Stoops, Vince Marrow, I think they all have, like, a friendly relationship with the crafts and have since before she was going to run for governor. Yeah, and that's it's not for us to know or decide what they're, what's actually in their hearts, but it does kind of lay over the entire situation that they have given millions and millions right, like, and millions fr- of dollars. friendly advantageous you are my very best friend who gave eight million dollars toward the facility like, that i really wanted likes having a, a rich friend right? yeah it's just the thing if they spend money on you you're going to be nice to them yeah that's just kind of how that goes i don't have any rich friends we need to get some jasmine nice. yeah <laughs> maybe we, well, yeah we, we should we should introduce ourselves to the crafts i'm sure they'll like us now um yeah yeah, I mean, one big wrinkle in this story, right? I mean, so this that's basically what the story is, right? There's an open records request. Um, it got denied. Uh, the Democratic Party is trying to dig up whether there's some sort of, like, embarrassing situation between the University of Kentucky Athletics Department and the Crafts who spent a bunch of money on them. Um, but, of course, the big wrinkle here is that Daniel Cameron is the sitting attorney general yeah. and is ruling on this on this, on this this situation. Yeah. This is awkward for everybody. <laughs> I don't know if Daniel Cameron thinks it's awkward. He's just like, yeah, y'all go ahead. She, They definitely broke the law. You need to bring all this dirt out. That is kind of what he's thinking right now, I think. Um, it, you know, it is kind of funky that he's getting to rule on this uh, on this case when it, it directly involves the political um, you know situation of his direct opponent, but that's not really all that different than what happened last cycle though, because Andy Bashir was the attorney general, and there were a lot of things going on with the Bevan administration where he was ruling on similar sorts of situations involving the Bevin administration and issuing, uh, you know, issuing rulings um, most of the time uh, because the Bevin administration was shady uh, and doing shady stuff. So, you know, I don't think Daniel Cameron is wrong here. I think Daniel Cameron is actually right here. It's just kind of funny that he's ruling on this uh, when he's his, the, the direct well, opponent. Yeah, it's awkward for UK and the crafts because the crafts are, you know, getting it from both the Republicans and Democrats here and then UK because now coaches of the football and basketball team are involved in this. Um, but you know that, I mean, like this is like opposition research. They're going to have to deal with this. Yep. What was, what was like annoying to me about this was I saw Louisville media people on Twitter when this story came out, when the story came out, it said two private individuals, and I saw Louisville Media being like, this is about Chris Rodriguez. Yeah, of course they were. Yeah. And I was like, 
No, this is clearly about Kelly and Joe Crack. Yeah, yeah, uh, a little bit, a little bit single-minded in the sports media world. That is for sure. Everything is just about sports. Uh, yeah, it was very clear that this was about Joe and Kelly Craft. I think that everybody did change. They changed direction on that pretty quickly uh, and realized that they were wrong. But they were very wrong there. Yes, absolutely. I just hope for my UK sports fandom that it's just like not anything weird. Oh no! I hope it's really weird. I mean, I hope it's like Charlie Strong level weird. I mean, let's just let's just lean all the way in here. Matt Jones said it's just going to be texts like, "Hey, you want to go to Jeff Ruby's?" <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, uh, who knows? Who knows what's in there? You know, it could be it could be really funky. Um, and no one has yet pointed out that Daniel Cameron is also a former University of Louisville football player. I mean, I think that potentially also is relevant. Uh, yeah, so. That's true. <laughs> yeah, uh, regardless, that's kind of what's going on. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things we talked about is uh, how Kelly Craft's connections to the UK Athletics Department could both help and hurt her. Um, and it's already starting to happen, I think, um, with, with this uh, clearly on like day one where they're trying to dig up stuff. UK is a public institution. Um, I think the U- UK was really, really upset when Kelly Craft decided to pull the trigger and run for governor because it does make things just like incredibly complicated for yeah. them that one of their biggest and most important donors is now running for governor. Yeah. So, Jasmine, that's all I had to say about that. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about regarding that? No, I think that's it. All right. Tell us about um, these marijuana convictions. All right. Um, I've been talking too long tonight, but one last short story here. Um, So Governor Bashir announced he's looking into marijuana convictions after President Biden announced he's pardoning people with federal convictions for simple possession of marijuana. Biden's move is estimated to help between six and seven thousand people with federal convictions. And he's called on governors to pardon those currently serving time on state level marijuana offenses as well, which prompted Bashir's announcement. Bashir said he was not briefed and he was surprised about the announcement, so his office is now looking into what they can do. He's requested data from Administrative Office of the Courts um, on how many Kentuckians could be eligible for state pardons for marijuana possession-only offenses. So I don't, I don't really know what this number might look like because possession of marijuana can already be it's already an expungeable offense. Um, it's no longer prosecuted on its own in Jefferson County for those over 21. Um, I know AOC said that it's working on a report regarding possession of marijuana convictions from 2017 to 2022. And they said that there were 56,039 convictions during that time. So that is a lot. Um, but that's convictions, not the number of people. And that may be convictions tied to other things. And so I don't know if they would expunge convictions that are tied. I don't think that they would expunge convictions tied to other offenses. Um, I'm I'm just assuming maybe simple possession charges only, but... They, I'm not sure. They could. They could expunge those. They could pardon those people, but it, it doesn't seem likely. I think it, it seems more likely that they'll take a right, more conservative they, tact here, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's a lot of convictions, but um, that would be that would be 
all possession marijuana convictions, whether they had other charges that they pled guilty to or were convicted of, um, multiple multiple counts, things like that. Um, so the actual number of people it affects is probably a lot less than that. Um, what I think would make a more meaningful difference without endangering the public is pardoning convictions for trafficking marijuana under eight ounces um, because those are still misdemeanor convictions that is for like a smaller amount of marijuana that is more likely to be prosecuted than just possession of marijuana is now and so I think that that is something that I think the governor should look into but I don't think I don't know when we'll see trafficking offenses. I <laughs> I, I, I well I agree with you on on two counts there, Jasmine. I really agree with you that they probably won't do this. But I think if we're gonna sit here and say like, oh gosh, we should pardon people who possess marijuana because really, what did they do that was wrong? How can we sit here and say that the the people who were like getting them the small amounts of marijuana were also doing something wrong? Like they they I mean if 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 getting it isn't bad, is selling it also not that bad? Like it just it's these are yeah. the really low level, the lowest guy on the totem pole. I mean I you know there there's different people who can think differently. These are not like the kingpins who are like you know hijacking trains and uh, attaching cars of marijuana to bring through whatever. They're not those people. They're like the guy on the end of the street who people like you know they oh yeah go talk to that guy like that's well, that person who might get in yeah, huge the trouble people, the people with trafficking under eight ounces is like the kid with like a mason jar yeah it's marijuana. literally the like the <laughs> lowest true. guy on the totem pole who's just like man i just want to get 500 bucks to buy a playstation like that's that guy and like they got caught and like all of a sudden they got their life got, got turned upside down you could really set a lot of things right for some people who really are ripe to like rejoin society and probably be um in a much better position to be functional members of society after being like subjected to the criminal justice system for several years because they were trying to buy a playstation yeah, and I I think that you know, I don't I don't know I think that a trafficking conviction can also look so much it can also damage you so much worse like on a background check than a possession of marijuana could or something like that. And so I think that that could make a really meaningful difference. Uh yeah, I um, totally agree with you, Jasmine. Yeah, but like you said, like well, first of all, I do want to say like it's kind of a miracle that we've gotten here with Joe Biden and Andy Bashir. Like, Joe Biden has been very, very anti-marijuana for a lot of his career and has really, really come around on this issue. I, I do think, like, society changed under his feet, and he reacted to it. And that, to a smaller extent, is also true of Andy Bashir, who has always been very, very big into law enforcement. You know, he got the FOP endorsement in 2019. He was the attorney general, the state's top cop, uh, as they like to call it. Um, and, you know, marijuana advocates in Kentucky have not often seen Andy Bashir as their partner, as their ally. And I think that that's a, this is a pretty significant um, improvement on that level for, for Andy Bashir. I mean, I don't know. You know, maybe maybe he is different. And, you know, a lot of this is like secondhand that I hear from people that care a lot about marijuana. Um, but but I do think that this is like this is kind of surprising to a lot of people from from both of these men um, who who haven't always been, you know, the, the best on this issue. Yeah. And I I don't think he would have done this without Biden doing the pardons because I don't know. His name was like 
he did not brief me about this. I did not know that this was happening. Yeah, yeah. That's it, man. He's the president of the United States. He's not call you about everything. Come on now. Like that's you know that's like me being like Andy Bashir. He did not brief me about those COVID changes. You know, <laughs> it it would have been nice if that's something that you had already been thinking about pardoning because it's literally like the lowest level offense we have. Like, can we just go ahead and get rid of that? But I digress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it, you know, Jasmine, it has been a really, really long road to get, have any sort of progress on marijuana as an issue. I mean, it, it goes back, you know, Cheech and Chong was in like the seventies and they were talking about like, and, and you know, uh, Jimmy Carter, was a big proponent of decriminalization of marijuana in the 70s. I mean, bef- yeah. and then, you know, in the meantime, you know, we had Ronald Reagan, we had George Bush, big, big, like, war on drugs that really turned this into, like, a really terrible situation. And it did seem really hopeless for a really long time. Um, it does feel like we're making progress, albeit slowly, on this issue. So I do, yeah. I do have some hope that even, you know, we have had some progress with the Republican majority. Jason Nemus has really been pushing for this in, in the state legislature. I wish he'd try harder. <laughs> but, medical you know. Mar- he's pushing for medical. Yeah. Uh, again, I wish he'd try harder. I wish he'd push for more. Um, I wish we'd do a lot better. Um, we'll see. We'll see what, what will happen here. Um, but yeah, it does feel like it does feel like. Um, and, and you know, I, the next big step I think is Joe Biden potentially reclassifying marijuana out of the the C one controlled substance uh, situation, so that you know it can be it can be like um, prescribed medically and used recreationally in in the same way that a lot of yeah. other like. Uh, caffeine or tobacco uh, or alcohol yeah and of course i was being hyperbolic there are some less serious offenses that are called violations which are even lower than class b misdemeanors speeding the least serious um but it's pretty close but Bashir also said that no one is currently gelled for um just single like simple possession of marijuana so that is a good thing um he also said that um he formed an advisory committee on medical marijuana, which recently reported that the overwhelming majority of Kentuckians support it. Um, and it also found that people are crossing state lines to get it. Um, so I think he is trying to um, make that an issue in hopes the legislature will do something about medical marijuana. Um, and so we'll, we'll see if we get some progress on that. But um, I think that's pretty much it there, Robert. All right. Uh, just a few quick hits before we get to our interview with Daniel Grossberg. All right. Former state representative and justice cabinet secretary John Tilley was indicted on rape charges this week. We told you a few weeks ago that he'd been arrested. Um, Tilly maintains his innocence, but this will be moving forward in a Lexington courtroom. Really sad stuff. Really, really disappointing and unfortunate. Um, you know, just a really heart, big heartbreaker for 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 us who, um, you know, uh, saw John Tilly's work and were really big admirers of it for a long time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, tough, tough, tough read for sure. The state education testing data came out this week. Uh, student test performance remains below where it was uh, before the pandemic started. 
Um, there are lots of data sources where you can look up your specific school's progress or regress or whatever, but it should be mentioned that, like, you know, the results are very tightly correlated to poverty and a lot of outstanding circumstances is like, hey, it turns out that the kids that we don't, that don't have a lot and aren't given a lot don't do that well. Like, do we really need to take a test to figure that out? Um, you know, the, the testing regimes and the way that we measure schools and school policy is some of the diciest stuff in all of politics. Um, but yeah, every year we come out with these numbers and they came out, so we felt like we should mention it. Anything you want to say about school tests? No. You're the only one who doesn't want to say anything. So good. Good for you. <laughs> Not, well, okay. There, there's a lot to say and a lot to say about like poverty correlating with test results. Um, but I, you know, we talked a lot today and it's a quick hit for today. For sure. Uh, and then lastly, the FBI is again active in Bardstown in the Crystal Rogers case. Uh, this is an update from years ago. We've talked about this many, many times uh, and, and it even interviewed the, the, the host of a podcast about this case. Yeah. Um, but in case you need a refresher, there were several disappearances in Bardstown several years ago, including Crystal Rogers. The local and state police weren't really able to determine the cause, and that might be because of the local police's connection to the main suspect. Um, so that's, you know, there's a lot of drama. It's like uh, there's a whole like true crime podcast featuring this. Uh, it's a well-trod case. People have talked about it a lot. But the feds have been on the case for a while now, and they are searching Brooks Hawks's farm for evidence. So that's something that's going on. Um, and, yeah, do you, anything you want to say about Crystal Rogers or Bardstown? Well, I think they did a search maybe like about a year or two ago in and nothing ever came of that, but they've been searching for three days now. And I don't know, like it, it seems serious. And so hopefully there's, there's a break in the case. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully something will finally happen here. Um, yeah. All right. Well, let's get to our interview with Daniel Grossberg. Daniel Grossberg is a state representative elect from Louisville. His district runs from Klondike elementary in the North to Preston highway in the South. Grossberg has been active in Democratic politics for a very long time, having led the Young Democrats of Louisville and Kentucky at many different levels. He'll become the only elected Jewish member of the state house. Um, Karen Berg in the Senate is also Jewish. Um, but Daniel Grossberg, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, just to clarify one thing, I was the president of the Louisville Young Democrats and involved in the Kentucky Young Democrats, but did not lead that. However, I was on the state central executive committee for a term, uh, which is four years. I was on the county executive committee for eight years and have been the president of the Metro Democratic Club and in leadership of other ones. So, so I've been around the block a lot. Yeah, definitely involved in party stuff. That was the thing that stuck out the, the most to us. You know, we talked to a lot of people who are running for these offices and, um, you know, they're all in, involved in different ways with different things. But uh, of all the people I think that we've talked to uh, that are running for, for uh, the legislature, you're probably the most involved with the Democratic Party as an institution. So that's something we want to talk to you about for sure. Um, but first, let's talk to you about a little bit why you're going, you're taking the step to run for House. So, you know, Kentucky Democrats, definitely in what Josie or Joni Jenkins calls the super minority, holding 25 seats in the state house, very rarely given the opportunity to pass their bills or really even talk or uh, get their get their get a word in edgewise uh, in in Frankfurt. 
Despite this, you know, you decided to take on a long-term incumbent in the Democratic primary. You appeared pretty willing to spend a significant amount of your own money to win the seat. Uh, you came out really strong. I mean, I know you were out there canvassing all the time. You know, it was a three-way primary, and you were out there working really hard. What is it that gives you such a strong desire to be such, uh, be a part uh, of the Kentucky House? Well, I think that's several questions in one. But first, let me say... I wouldn't call it a super minority. I would call it a super duper minority. I mean, that that's how grim it is when right now we're outnumbered by three to one and most calculations are that it gets worse. But I think that things can get done even in the super duper minority. The biggest issue that the Democratic Party has had, and this includes my, my former opponent, uh, my predecessor, is that we have never learned how to be a minority party. We were spoiled for literally 100 years as the majority party, and this cycle coming up is going to be the first time ever that a majority of the Democratic caucus will be people who have not served in the majority. And with that change, we can start to get things done, and and it basically falls into two different spheres. The first is that on issues of principle, we do need to put up a fight. We do need to try and obstruct and resist the Republican efforts. But there are still many other things that we can compromise on where we're not compromising our principles, but we're compromising in a pragmatic sense. Everything from transportation funding to uh, criminal justice reform and education reform, where the majority party admits that they're going to be doing something, we should be involved and make sure that the bills are as positive as possible and and, and sadly, I hate saying this, but sometimes not as harmful as they would otherwise be. And with all due respect to the more senior representatives, many of whom are retiring and, and, and my, my predecessor who is retiring not by choice, they never were able to make that adjustment. But we have a lot of new people coming in, in Louisville and in Lexington and hopefully elsewhere as well. And that combined with the people who are in for only two or three terms already, uh, like my my neighbor, Josie Raymond, um, I think that that shift is going to give us the opportunity to make real change. And secondly, I would say that most of us are young enough that we hope to be around when we're not just in the super duper minority, not even in the super minority, maybe not even in the minority, but maybe in 20 years, we'll be back in the majority. So it's it's a long game. I guess one quick follow-up question here. I, you know, you took on Tom Birch, who had been in the House for a very long time, and, and you'd run for the seat before. And so um, what made you want to take on an incumbent? I didn't feel that the job was being done effectively. I, I don't want to litigate an old race, but I had not been satisfied, and clearly the, the voters had not been satisfied. Um, And two years ago when I ran, if I could have magically predicted COVID, I wouldn't have run because and winning by shoe leather. And I wanted to canvas and I was prohibited from canvassing because there was an order from the governor not to do it. And I still did well. And I knew confidently that I would beat him in a head to head race. However, he was literally the first candidate to file for office in the entire state. And then one of his protégés was the seventh candidate ever to file in the entire state uh, and the first person to file as a challenger in the same race. But I knew that I still had an opportunity and needed to get in the race because 
I knew that I would outwalk them and anybody else and anybody they could hire and personally visited over 5,000 doors in the primary. So um, had I been door to door in 2020 and lost and given it all I had, probably wouldn't have run in 2022. But because I was hamstrung and still did that well, and I knew that the message resonated with those whom I could contact, I was confident that if I had that opportunity to meet the voters face to face, that there would be a different outcome, and there was. So we, we want to talk about your district a little bit. So your district in kind of, it's in East Central Louisville is mm-hmm. among the most diverse districts in the whole state. In addition to a significant African-American population, there are also other groups of immigrants from all over the world who call the 30th district home now. Um, so how do you hope to serve this population as a representative in the Kentucky House? Well, I'm I'm proud to brag that based upon the latest analysis I've seen post redistricting, we are now actually the most diverse district in the state with the largest white population and the largest majority minority. And um, it is diverse. And I'm glad you pointed that out. It's not just African Americans. We have African immigrants. We have Bosnian immigrants. We have Mm -hmm. a large Bhutanese and Nepalese community. We have a large Cuban population. We have other Latino populations. And I, I find this district to be a microcosm of what I think the city and the state uh, in its entirety should be like. That instead of everyone going off into their little self-segregated corners, um, you really see the blending. And you don't have to spend that much time, not that far from where I live, on Bardstown Road, not the Butchel Bypass, but you know the old Bardstown Road to see ethnic restaurant after ethnic store after, I mean, it's everything that you're looking for. And it reminds me of where I grew up. One of the swipes that political opponents have taken at me for years is I'm not from here. I've only been here for, what is it now, 26 years since I was a teenager, but I'm not from here. Well, where I am from is a city called Teaneck, New Jersey, which was recently uh, featured on MSNBC special called Model America as a majority minority district that unfortunately, despite having had great race relations for many years, became the real foundation 30 years ago of the Black Lives Matter movement when an unarmed black teenager was shot by a white police officer. And I was barely in middle school and, and I remember it freshly as if it was it was maybe just a few weeks ago. And that was really a seminal event in my lives uh, my life, excuse me, seeing how citizens could take to the streets, uh, run for office, run people out of office, and make a change for the better. And um, by no means do I want to compare anyone's experience with anyone else's, but you had noted in the introduction that I am the first, or I'm, I'm the only incoming Jewish member of the state house and will be the only one and, and the first man since at least the late 1950s, if in fact the person that we believe to have been Jewish um, was Jewish. So that gives me a unique perspective and I've had issues because of it. And I'll reiterate that no two people's experience are the same, but I also am glad that uh, my upbringing gives me a sensitivity and familiarity with other immigrant groups. You know, Teaneck, New Jersey is an immigrant community It's also a largely African-American community. I looked it up the other day. My high school is only 12% white. So 
Uh, Louisville, people talk about how diverse it is, that we're somewhere around 30%. To me, that's not a striking number. What's striking to me is that we have not overcome these barriers and gotten rid of the pockets of self-segregation. So one of the things I want to do to serve the population is not just be a voice for minority groups, not just be a voice for immigrant groups, but be a voice for let's work harder at bringing everyone together so that we're one greater Kentucky community and not as self-segregated as we've been. You mentioned uh, that, you know, you, you did a lot of shoe leather type campaigning and going out and speaking to a lot of different folks uh, in your district when you were running in the primary. Um, and, and since your district is such a diverse area, I mean, were you able to or do you have any experiences connecting um, with, you know, leaders or, or any of the groups of immigrants in, in your uh, in your district? I do know that, like, you know, people from the same areas, especially immigrant communities, tend to kind of congregate with one another. Um, so kind of do you have any stories about, uh, you know, connecting with those communities or, or uh, you know, how you're how you're able to listen or, or work with those folks and bring their concerns to Frankfurt? Um, I did my best efforts, but I must say that my opponent and his team, which includes some of my uh, future colleagues, did a really, really good job of defense. And if you look at the precinct maps, you will see one isolated precinct in the northern portion of the district that I lost. And that's the one that has the disproportionately large Bhutanese and Nepalese community. And using uh, a colleague of of ours, Nima Kulkarni, who is connected uh, to that community, they were able to uh, box out some of my my efforts, and hopefully that, that doesn't persist in the future, and I've had good meetings with them since. But more of it was door-to-door. Uh, when you're running against an incumbent, it's frequently difficult to get into the community meetings, into the churches. And I'm right before this, this podcast, I had a phone call with a church leader who is inviting me to speak to his church, the same church that I was not invited to and was kind of blocked off of during the primary. So there, there is a shift there and it's more of, I'm excited to do that in the group context, but thus far it's been on an individual one-to-one basis. Uh, but shameless plug, um, it, I should have said this earlier when we were talking about Bardstown Road and Butchel, if anyone on this podcast wants the absolute best desserts in Louisville, Sarah Ladd of the Courier Journal asked about it the other day and I gave a shameless plug, so I'm gonna do it again. Chocolate and Nut Kingdom on Bardstown Road in Butchel. It is owned by a Palestinian refugee family who has made it in America. It's the American dream. It, it, it's The story itself makes you want to cry that they came from nothing, avoiding a war-torn country and now have made it. But they also have the best desserts. They've got like 30 different kinds of baklava, 30 different kinds of Turkish delights. They have an ice cream bar that make more Sundays than you can imagine, smoothies, crepes, and then, of course, as I said, chocolate and nuts. So I'll shut up about that. But this is where I made these contacts. You hang out there or the Bosnian bakeries. I don't get as much uh, inside influence as I would being taken around by the community leader. But the regular people see you there and see you're making the effort. And now I am being taken around by the community leaders. Absolutely. I've been hearing about chocolate in that kingdom and I really want to go there. Yeah. I'm th- District 30 does have the best restaurants. It's true. Uh, yes. yes. Yeah, and they now really the do. Desserts. Yeah. So the, th- 
We should go there. We will go there together. We'll take a selfie. You can promote it on the podcast. <laughs> we got to we got to Yasmin's too. We'll get the uh yeah. We'll go to Yasmin Bakery, get the big gyro, you know. That's we'll do that. We'll do all the stuff. Yeah, there's some great uh great African restaurants. I think there's like some Sudanese places and I have been to a few uh and yeah, it's there's a ton of amazing places down there in a, District. A really Af- awesome Afro-Caribbean place. Uh, Eden and Kissy, which is also good, and, and yeah, all right, gone all day about the food. Gotta check it out. Yeah, that's actually not that. I live very close to District Thirty, so I'll I'll head down there. We'll we'll go together. Um, so let's talk a little bit about you, you mentioned you mentioned already your Jewish identity, but we definitely wanted to talk about that. We know that that's really important to you. That's something um, that that you identify with very very closely, very strongly. You've worked closely with several Jewish organizations throughout Louisville and Kentucky. You've already been a leader in this community. Now you're going to be an elected leader who's a part of this community. So talk to us a little bit about how you will bring your Jewish identity to Frankfurt. What it would mean to you to be the only Jewish person uh, elected to the Kentucky House. Um, I'm. I, one other thing, one other question along these lines, um, you know, you are, uh, you know, taking this identity to Frankfurt. And like you mentioned, uh, this is something that that is kind of rare in Frankfurt, despite the fact that Louisville has a long history of electing Jewish leaders, um, but never to Frankfurt. So so what does it mean to you to, to be to be able to take this uh, to to the statewide uh, level, to the statewide representative level? Well, there, there's a lot to unpack there, and I don't mean a lot to unpack on your question, but a lot to unpack on how overwhelming of a burden it feels while at the same time, such an amazing opportunity, um, because there's a longstanding myth that Jews control everything and that we have outside influence. But as you said, I'm going to be the first Jewish representative from Louisville in Kentucky's history. Uh, that's just you know a, a stated fact. Um, the Jewish organizations, tend not to agree on much. They don't even tend to agree on whether or not it's a good idea to now have an elected Jewish representative as opposed to them being the centers of influence in Frankfurt. But that said, it really guides my conscience and defines who I am. It's part of my experience. You know, asking someone not to take their Jewishness to Frankfurt would be like asking a black person not to take their blackness or a woman not to take her womanhood or an LGBTQ person not to take that. It is core to who you are, but I want to make clear to anyone and everyone listening that I am very, very anti-theocratic. I, by bringing my Jewishness, want to bring a different perspective that shows that we should be more open, more tolerant, and do less imposition of the Christian fundamentalist view. It's not that I want to replace that with a Jewish view. I don't want to impose my Judaism on anyone. I want to expose that others have been imposing upon those who don't share their religious values. And one example is uh, that recent lawsuit that was filed by the three Jewish women who are opposing the abortion ban in Kentucky, largely but not entirely on religious freedom grounds. Now, I'm not a woman. I don't have any standing uh, in court to sue on uh, the issue. I am very proud that they are. I'm happy to have met the women. But what they are saying is true. It is real. It is factual. And I think that they're going to win in court that the free exercise of religion is being burdened by Kentucky's laws because Judaism does not prohibit abortion. And in fact, in many cases, it prescribes abortion. If it interferes with the life of a mother, 
her physical or mental health in cases of rape and incest or in cases where the non-viable fetus, Jewish law has determined that the woman should have an abortion. Now, it doesn't force her, but let me be clear that she should. It's not, uh, the, the questions are taken away. But in Kentucky, women are no longer given that option because of a mythical Judeo-Christian view that life begins at conception, which is actually a really modern view. And if you look at Jewish scripture for thousands of years, it is held that life begins at birth not at conception, and now Kentucky's laws are interfering. And in fact, um, when I spoke at the press conference for this lawsuit, later that day, a certain Kentucky representative of the other party sent me a text that just linked an article and said, what is this? My response to him was exactly what you think. We don't believe that IVF and vitro fertilization is murder. And his response was, K doesn't believe lynching is murder. And then followed up with, and Satanists don't believe human sacrifice is murder. So after I calmed down and engaged in a conversation, I explained that there are fundamental different beliefs as to what defines life and, and what you can and can't impose or how you can and can't impose your will upon people. And I don't believe, and I don't know any Jew who does believe that a Petri dish with an egg and a sperm that has attached itself to the egg, creating a zygote at best, that that is a life and that is worth preserving by any and all measures. Um, and this person has come around not to changing his position on the abortion issue, but wanting to know more about Judaism and where his religion's belief that life begins at conception comes from. And I told him, I can't tell you because I can't find it in Christian scripture. And from what I can tell, even the Baptists didn't believe it was until they teamed up with Ronald Reagan in the early 80s and, and changed their view on it. Um, but being Jewish can do a lot of eye opening for people. You, you know, I, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, but we know that there were a few incidents uh, last session in both the House and the Senate with overt, abject anti-Semitism. And in all the cases, people swear it was an accident. They didn't understand. They promised to do better in the future. But this is, to me, a parallel to blackface where people say they didn't know any better. No, it's you didn't have any black people around to hold you accountable. And here, the anti-Semitism is because you didn't have any Jewish people around to hold you accountable and you didn't know that was a hot mic. Well, now that there's a Jewish person around, hopefully it happens less frequently, but hopefully there's an opportunity for some of these people to meet a Jew because several have told me they had never met a Jew before. And bizarre considering there is one in the other chamber, but that's something that's going to change on January 3rd is they can no longer say, I didn't know a Jew and I didn't know that this was anti-Semitic. There certainly were some anti-Semitism issues in um, the House and Senate last year. Um, and we always just like to ask that question because we like to know about the, the things that make um, candidates unique and diverse and the perspectives that you'll bring to the House um, but before we let you go, we want to ask you about issues as well. Um, like we talked about at the top of the show, you've been involved in politics for a long time and have spoken out about lots of different issues at different points in time. Um, but what particular issues do you see yourself leading on in the state legislature? Um, the issues I ran on 
which are the ones that I'm most passionate about, not as personal issues, but as policy issues are affordable housing and medication, better jobs and education, and safer streets. And these are all very clearly in the purview of uh, the state legislature and issues that we've done enough talking, we need to do some, some real working on it. Um, my wife is a teacher. My parents were both teachers. My grandparents were teachers. And I've said on social media that I think the biggest looming crisis is the teacher shortage. And people are saying, looming crisis, we're already in it. Yeah, well, if you knew the number of teachers that are still in the profession looking to leave who haven't yet, you would understand that it can and will get a lot yeah. worse if we don't deal with it. So I think that might be priority number one. The reason why I led on the campaign with affordable housing is because uh, I'm a real estate agent by trade. That's my area of specialty. There are colleagues of mine like Tina Bojanowski who know more about education than I do. So I'm not going to steal her thunder and try and lead on that, but I'm definitely going to be part of, of a legislative solution. But, you know, it doesn't matter whether it was the Klondike neighborhood in my district or Newburgh or Okalona. When I spoke to voters, this is what was on their mind, these things. And then on the last week after the Dobbs decision was leaked, then abortion came up. But prior to that, people want to talk about, are their kids going to have a better future than them, jobs and education? And are their kids going to have a, a chance to survive and grow up safer streets? And then, of course, are they going to be able to help their kids out, which is keeping things affordable, housing and medication? It's it, These bread and butter issues are something that to me should be nonpartisan. And for far too long, those of us on both sides, myself included, have tried to draw a line to draw the contrast, but we've all got to work together because if not, we're all going to suffer together. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like uh, there, there, there's a lot to be said for listening to people, finding the issues that they care about, and also just being able to to um, be flexible and, and work on the issues um, that are the most important at the given time. And also to, to take uh, the things that you know the most about that that form your day job and and um, you know work on those issues in Frankfurt. Um, all right, so you don't need any help this year. You're already a state representative elect, unless there's some sort of crazy write-in situation, which seems incredibly unlikely. Um, so you know you 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 don't really need any help this year. But for any folks who do live in the 30th district or you know like what you're about, maybe um, they want to learn more about how they can connect with you or or you know work with you in the next legislative session, or just want to be connected uh, to their to the representative if they live in the 30th district uh, how can they get in contact with you uh, how can they how can they talk to you well if they want to help they can help because any help that comes to me uh, goes to building a war chest for future defense and can be used to help my other colleagues and i've been canvassing since the primary not in my district but going around the state helping house colleagues as much as possible i don't expect that others from louisville will be able to take that liberty to do it but there are other candidates they can volunteer for. And if they want my recommendations or if they wanna just get in touch with me with a legislative question or a constituent issue, which I'm already helping with, you can contact me at Grossberg, G-R-O-S-S-B-E-R-G, the number four K-Y, and that's on all major social media. That's also the website's handle. Um, or you can email me there or you can call me on my cell or text me at 24-7. I keep it on silent so you won't wake me up. 930-0039. That's 502-930-0039. And if none of those methods work, 
you somehow wrote it down wrong, you can reach out to Robert or Jasmine and they know how to get in touch with me. So That's true. We do. Um, all right, Daniel Grossberg, thank you very much for joining us today. We really do appreciate it. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a great one. Jasmine, how can people find out about us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And we are part of the Ford Kentucky Network and part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.